The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. so much, Miss Meg. It is well, it is well with my soul. That is awesome. All right, well, I invite your attention this morning to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and we'll be starting today in verse 7 as you turn that way. Uh, if you're visiting with us and you forgot your Bible or you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take the Bible in front of you. Uh, we're on page, I believe, 835 and 836 this morning in the Blue Bible. Uh, the chapter numbers, and I, I, I know many of us, this is old hat, but the chapter numbers are the big numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. So no shame in looking it up. Uh, no shame in not knowing that. We're just grateful you're here if you're visiting or if you forgot your Bible or whatever the case is at that point. As you're turning, let me just give you a couple updates. Uh, many of you have asked, when are we, uh, what's the next upcoming sermon series? And I always want to point you back to our website, uh, towerviewkc.com. You can find all this info on there. But uh, this week, we're going to focus on Mark for one more week. And then leading up to Easter the 9th and 16th, the Sundays, we'll be focusing on why is it important Jesus died and why is it important he resurrected? We'll look at that theologically, but also very practically. Theology is practical. And then uh, the last two uh, weeks are some questions that you have had in April. Uh, what is the church about? What should the church be about? And how many pastors should a church have? You say, Darren, those sound like really boring topics, but they relate to you so well. We'll get there. And then in May and June, uh, so many of you have asked some great questions about what does it mean to be a man, a biblical man? And what does it mean to be a biblical woman? How does that work out? So ladies, because Mother's Day is in May, we're going to beat up on the guys for the month of May, okay? So uh, during all the month of May, we'll be topically going through what is a biblical man. But ladies, on Father's Day, or, or that whole month of June, we get to look at what is a biblical woman, because so many things that are out there are not true. And one thing I want to share with you as well, uh, you know, I, I told Judy this, I think on Wednesday, Judy, you remember this, that uh, Mark has spoken to so, the book of Mark has spoken to so many things that we have gone through as a church in the last couple of years, and uh, as things that, as pastorally, we see coming up, that we're going to continue to make Mark our main focus through the coming months. That is a change, but I pray you're blessed through that, because it's teaching you a couple things. It's teaching you, first off, that we don't just cherry pick God's word. You hate it when people jump in your conversations, don't you? Hey, what are you talking about? Well, I did that. And they're not even talking about anything you're doing. And it also teaches you that God himself came down in Christ and you get to see that. So we'll be going through that most of the rest of the year with some breaks for the holidays, just so you know that. How long will it take us to go through Mark? Any guesses? Anybody? Any, a long time? Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. A long time. Roughly, it'll take about through 2017 and most of 2018, again, with some breaks through the summers and the holidays. So you hang tight for that. That's the longest book we will have preached through here since I've been here. So thank the Lord for it. All right, you got Mark chapter 2, or Mark chapter 3, right? And uh, we will talk about uh, Mark chapter 3, but one of those old dead guys, and if you know who this old dead guy is, you can say his name with me. His, his picture will be up there. Do you know who this old dead guy is? It's Martin Luther. You've studied him in history and everywhere else. Martin Luther, at the end of his life, was asked to summarize his life in one sentence, not for a headstone, but just in conversation. And he said this, he said, I was well known, I was well known on earth, in heaven, and in 
hell. I was well known on earth, in heaven, and in hell. So when Luther looked back on his life, he saw that everything that he did that was in heaven written in the Lamb's book of life. He was no stranger to heaven. But here on earth, he was merely passing through. He was an alien, if you will. And uh, he wasn't a CIA or Secret Service Christian, if that's even possible. He wasn't a camo Christian, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't wear camo as a Christian. It just means that some people are literally camouflaged with their face. But he flew his flag for all to see on earth. So in heaven he was known, in earth he was known, and in hell his life was provocative so much that he split up the Christian faith as we knew it then to form the Protestant denomination. His preaching ministry, his life, and his faith were used by God to do that. Luther said he was well known on earth, in heaven, and in hell. Friends, we're going to see that same thing happen in the passage that we're going to look at today. You're going to see Jesus, who is well known on earth, who is obviously well known in heaven, he came from heaven, but also you're going to see that he's well known in hell. And it got me to thinking, that should be our prayer too, shouldn't it be? Our prayer should be is whatever we do in this life, that we are well known on earth, in heaven, and in hell. Now what I mean by that is, is that when it comes to it, we step up to the plate. And yes, that's a baseball reference because baseball starts tonight. But one thing you need to know is that wherever you go, that you are called to be a representative of Jesus Christ with a winsome but personal and powerful testimony of the grace of God in your life. If you live this way, you are very well known in hell, especially because our lives should have such an impact for eternity that the devil himself and the hordes of hell will come after us because we are strategizing and mobilizing through God's power with the gospel of his name. So may it be that our church is well known on earth, not for popularity reasons, but for living for Christ. May we be well known in heaven that we are truly saved, and may we be well-known in hell as well. So friends, it's a great reminder of a verse we've shared in the last couple months, but I want to remind you of this verse, Galatians 2.20. If you want a life verse, chop this one down. Galatians 2.20 reminds us of this fact. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but who? Christ that lives within me. The crucified life that we'll see Jesus continue to live out is the best way to die and the only way to to live. It's a great apologetic because it shows people that we are truly living for something that is different than what they know. So what does it mean for you as a Christian, as a church, as a family to live a life that is well-known in earth, well-known in hell, and well-known in heaven? And how do we do that exactly? Well, friends, I want to remind you today with our big idea very simply this, is that your believing life as a Christian is not an amusement park. Yes, and World of Fun opened up yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. They are somewhere in that way. But we are not in an amusement park. Friends, we are in a war zone. We're in America. We don't have war zones going on around us, but spiritually speaking, we do. And what we will see is that the nearer we fall this amazing God, the more advanced to ground zero of the war we must go and be. And so the battle won't end tomorrow, but praise God, his grace is sufficient. Praise God that he gives us the grace to do all these things that Jesus is going to do for us in this passage. And he's always with us, and there's no sin or defeat that can ever overtake us because he is enough. There's powerful grace for every battle that you will face. So the sermon title I have to ask today is, How Well Known Are You? How well known are you? And what I mean by that is not how popular you are, not how amazing you are, although you are all pretty amazing people, if I do say so myself. 
But seriously, how well-known are you? And friends, I want to ask that question because Jesus is well-known in heaven. My beloved son, we read a couple months ago, the father said he is well-pleased. He was well-known on earth. He was known by friend and foe. The, the, the people loved him, but the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, scribes, the Sanhedrin, they hated his guts. And oh, by golly, Jesus was well-known in hell, wasn't he? So much that the, the demons screamed out, you are the son of God. But the more you are out on the lines for Jesus Christ, the more you will face opposition, not from heaven, but from on earth and in hell. So friends, five things today I want to look at, and they're very straightforward from the text. Uh, This is more of an informational uh, outline for those taking notes, but I hope it frames your notes if you take them. Uh, We're going to look at Jesus' counteraction, how he does this. We're going to look at the cluster of people. The the crowds are coming after Jesus. Then we're going to look at the constraint Jesus has to these crowds, his confession, or actually the demon's confession of him, and then the command that he tells them. See, Darren, that's great, but how does this relate to me? Friend, I ask you that question again, that Luther quote. Are you well-known in heaven? Do you know Jesus? Have you been saved? Are you well-known on earth for the right reasons for Jesus Christ? And perhaps even a better question, does hell shake at the name that you get on your knees and pray and you live for Christ as you ought to live? As we do, if you're able, if you'll stand in honor of God's word this morning, as we read Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. And it says in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd, or a, a major multitude, followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Can you just see that scene in your mind, all these people? And he says, for he had healed many. So all that who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits, that's the demons, saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And Jesus strictly, verse 12, ordered them not to make him known. Friend, I pray that our church is well known in heaven because we're a faithful church. I pray as Christians, we are well-known on this earth, not because of anything sinful or anything popular or anything faddish, but because we're faithful followers of Christ. And I pray as a church, we are well-known in hell because we are unwilling and unrelentingly standing on the word of God and what he says about us. And may that be our prayers as Christians as well. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to pray. Father, we pray that our church being known in heaven, Lord, would be one that is on fire for you. But Lord, we wouldn't be cold or lukewarm, but we would be blazing hot for you. Father, that sin would not be safe here because the Savior is here. But Father, it's a place to be okay where we're not okay because Father, you have said, come as you are. Yet at the same time, we know, Lord, that we desire holiness within our ranks. Not a legalistic pharisaicalism that we've read about in recent weeks, but Lord, a truly spirit-wrought, spirit-bought, blood-bought, directional holiness that leads to the life that Christ will show us here. Father, that is not something that we can do ourselves, although we're called to work out with salvation, with fear and trembling. But Lord, by grace, through your spirit enabling us, we need your strength. Father, be with each one today. Give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Well, I invite your attention to the first point this morning, the counteraction in verse 7. The counteraction. 
just to reread that, this is the first part of there, is Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him. I don't know if you can picture this in your mind, but if you have that Hollywood picture in your mind, you can see literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of thousands of people. I'm not knocking this, but I always like to sleep myself. But if you're a big Black Friday shopper and you have to get up at three in the morning to go get those great deals, you probably have seen this happen. Or uh, I understand the Garth Brooks tickets online had this effect happen the other day if you were trying to get Garth Brooks tickets for coming up at his show in a few weeks or whenever it is. This crowd is pressing around him, so Jesus has a counter move. It's kind of like a chess game. Last week we saw Jesus went into the synagogues, and verse 6 tells us that uh, you back up, it says, so they tried to destroy him. They hated Jesus, the religious leaders did. So now he does a counteraction, a counter move. He goes with the ebb and flow of the ministry. There are times when he would advance and withdraw. There are times when he would face it head on. There are times over when he would pull over and, and, and spend a few days. But here he retreats to a safe place because his time had not yet come. Literally, the word withdrew. He withdrew so as to not get personally harmed. Guys, they were going to kill him. If they could have killed Jesus on the spot, they were going to take him out just like that. Boom. He was well known on earth. He was like a man who would have to withdraw his hand out of a fire because his ministry had become so red hot to touch that he just had to get out of there. They weren't trying to go after his ministry or his reputation. They were going after his very life, the Pharisees were. And so for the eternal purposes of God, they couldn't take it. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. It was not time for Jesus to die yet. And so now you have literally thousands of people convening on Jesus. And were he were to stay where he was last week, it was very possible that he would have been killed. But God is a sovereign God, and God is not unknown to Jesus. He is God himself, and he knows it's too early for his crucifixion. It's not the time the Father had fixed for him. So he goes there in verse 7 to the sea. Well, what is that sea? It's the Sea of Galilee. It's the, the big sea that's right there in Israel. And this will afford, afford him some options of self-preservation. And as I say that, I think, well, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this God? Couldn't he just send his angels down and knock everyone silly and, and they just all fall down? Of course he could. That's not the point. His time had not yet come. And so he's with his expert boat fishermen and he can't escape. But again, his time has not yet come. But I want you to notice who is with Jesus here. Jesus withdrew with who? His disciples. He withdrew with his disciples. Friends, Jesus' example from pulling away from the crowd was training for these disciples. It's, uh, it's kind of like when you're in college and you take notes. I don't know if, you are, if you're in high school, if you remember back that far, uh, and you take notes and you do all those sorts of things, and you remember that if someone's just talking to you, did you get much out of it? But probably not. Some of you are like super good. I look at Nelson who I can like give him a, a verse and he memorizes it for life in five seconds. That's just how God's blessed our brother. But others of us who struggle through that have to like go over it and over it. And, and, and it doesn't sink in except for the test. That's, I think that's legitimately honest. But if we go out and do something with our hands, if you put me in shop, well, I can't, I, I, it took me six months to sew a pair of pants in high school. So in the shop or whatever it was. But for some of you, if you go out and do something with your hands, don't you learn faster? Is that not true? If you, show, if, you, if you tell a little kid this and you go and show them, which are they more likely to learn from? By doing it, right? It's obvious. And what Jesus is seeing here is that he's with his disciples. 
Friends, this is a training ground for them. Jesus withdrawing is a training ground for them to see that even when you're ministering, there are times that you need to take a step back. But it's Jesus, Darren. He's God. Yeah, but he's also fully human. We often forget that. In his humanity, Jesus is showing them that now you suddenly have to start paying attention to some certain details here. And Jesus wants them to feel the heat and understand that ministry isn't smooth sailing. Look, if you want stress in your life, don't join the ministry. You know what the easiest job is? Is pastoring, right? Because you only preach a 45-minute sermon on Sunday and uh, you go home. Amen, right? Who wouldn't want to sign up for that job? And that's not the truth, that you know there are times that when Jesus is reminding them, there are times when you have to face the devil head on. There are times when you have to engage issues and people and and culture head on. But there are times when you have to, like Jesus did, take a step back. But Darren, we're Americans. We have to work 365 days a year, seven days a week, or we're never going to get anything done. Praise the Lord for American puritanical work ethic. I grew up with that. My dad lives that, even to this day, working 10-hour days, six days a week at 67 years old. Praise the Lord. But there are times when you have to withdraw. And Jesus is using this to prepare them for the heat in the kitchen that is going to come after he dies. What is the point I'm trying to make? Friends, if we would look at every time in your life when you're forced to wait, as God's gracious invitation to pray, that would radically change your life. There's so many times as a church, as a family, as a thing, you have this end goal in mind and you just want to push and push and push and push. And if you've lived the Christian life long enough, you know sometimes the harder you push, the less you get. Is that, is that not true? God says, okay, you blockhead, I'll put another block right in front of you and do this and push it back. Friends, if God, if you're praying through something, it feels like you've got to push and push and push, but it seems like God's sovereign hand is pushing you the other way. Stop and pray about it. You should pray about everything, but especially during those times. Sometimes in church life, it is laissez-faire in the sense of we're just going to keep doing what God told us to do. Other times, it's God can't, like last year, it seemed like in this last year, you know God was working among us and he still is, but you couldn't even move and, and, and someone got saved. It was amazing. It was crazy. But there are ebbs and flows to life and to ministry. And if you're going to live a life that is well-known in heaven, earth, and hell, by God's grace, sometimes you have to take one step back to go 20 steps forward in God's plan for your life. Church, our history informs us of that. Back in 2001, 2002, we were down to 20 people in this church. We had to ask some seriously hard questions. Those of you who are here during that time know that. But look where God has brought it faithfully through the things to do that. It's wise to remember those things, to live a life pleasing to God. Would you pray this week, Lord, I want this, but God may be saying, oh, no, 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 I'm going to move you over here. Sometimes it works that way. You're praying for this job and God sends you that job. You're praying for uh, this conversation and God leads it this way in a conversation. Fill in the blank. God can use it in so many ways, but that's what Jesus shows us first off, to live a life well-known in heaven, hell, and earth. So here it is. First thing is the counteraction. Second thing I want you to see is the cluster of people. And that's probably not the right word, but the cluster of people. Look back at verse seven. He says, and a great crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. What I want you to see here is there's two very large groups of people. And, and that Greek word there is, is, is huge. It's, it means huge, literally huge people, groups of people coming. 
He is at Jesus now. He's at the height of his popularity. Have you ever just wanted to be one of those? Uh, I always see those great, and some of you lived in this era, and if you did this, I, I want to get your autograph for this. But those people who, when they saw the Beatles back in the day, those girls were like literally sobbing. Oh, you know, uh, um, I can't even think of their names. Uh, uh, the Beatles, you know, the group that said, all you need is love, and they broke up afterwards, you know, uh, that sort of thing. You, you know those people. Or if you're a, a modern-day person, I worked at the NAI downtown. I remember seeing the Sprint Center about five or six years ago when Justin Bieber came to town. Mom, Justin Bieber, woo you know, all that sort of thing. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. And there are people who are following him in mass. They're coming together. They're like mighty rivers forming one thing. It's like the Missouri and Mississippi meeting in St. Louis and just going down the delta to the, to the Gulf of Mexico. There are two groups. The first one is from Galilee. And I don't have a map up there for you, but you can trust me when I say it would be like Tower View in relation to Liberty, Gladstone, Claycoma, Randolph, all those areas, Riverside. It's the northern part. They're the locals. But Galilee is also the place where Jesus spent the majority of his time. Uh, I noted here at least uh, one, two, three, let's see, four, five, six different times in the last three chapters that we've seen the word Galilee. These are your local people. Their local superstar has made it big. Their hometown boy has made it really big, and they want to go see that. And they say, he's back, woo Then there's a second group, and I, I, don't miss this, folks. Do not miss what these people are doing. The crowds are coming. Notice it says, from Jerusalem and Idiomia and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus wasn't going to hide, but he knew there's a mass of people. They sent him out of the city, the Pharisees did, so he's going to make church out in the open air, just like that. And this is the southern part of Galilee, all these places. Idiomia was about 100 miles away. 100 miles from here is, let, let me do my math here. 100 miles here might be Boonville to the east. Uh, boy, 100 miles. Uh, Maryville to the north, somewhere in there. Think about walking that distance to see your favorite preacher. Whew. That makes Sunday morning seem like a walk in the park, doesn't it? These people were coming from everywhere. They came from beyond the Jordan, from the trans, they came from uh, the north, they came from the south, they came from the west, Tyre and Sidon were the Phoenicians, they were the Vogue kind of, you know, GQ people of the day, modern day Lebanon. They were coming from north, south, east, and west to see this guy, Jesus. He was well known on earth. Mark is showing us that they came, and they came, notice what the verse says here, friends, it says he, they came after who? They came after him. Why is that important? Well, it's wave after wave after wave after wave. I just want to throw up an application point here that you'll see on the screen from, or from Amy. Jesus doesn't care about the good old church-going crowd. They can come from thousands. But he had one thing, and it was to recall it was him that was going to be crucified. No, Jesus wants fully committed followers, no matter how few they may be. Do you know why all these people started coming to him? We'll get there in just a second. They came to him because Jesus did some pretty cool things, didn't he? They came to him because he had healed in ways that they had never seen before. They came to him from 100 miles away, hoping physically that someone they know and love dearly might be touched by this man who apparently can heal when the doctors could not heal. Who wouldn't do that? Would you walk 100 miles from here to Maryville or whatever the 100 miles is, to if you could heal your loved one, would you do that? You would do it, wouldn't you? And Jesus didn't turn them away necessarily. 
But he reminds us that a crowd does not make a congregation, nor does a church make a, 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 a building. Truth never comes from both sides of its mouth. It never caters to the crowd. Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd, but Jesus is reminding us that popularity of a pastor, popularity of a staff member, popularity of a church, popularity of anything related to him is not the call for things to be. Friends, I am not an entertainer. I hope you know that. I tried stand-up comedy once with you, and it lasted about two minutes, and that's about as far as we got. Amen? And you're, you see, and you can laugh with me, right? The power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. And that is what Jesus is reminding us here. As all these people come across, he doesn't want, a Jesus doesn't need 60 million followers on Twitter and Instagram to be Jesus. Jesus is Jesus no matter where he's at, no matter where he goes, because Jesus is God. And friends, if God were to dwindle our ranks down because we preach the truth, live the truth with love, compassion, mercy, and boldness, then so be it. Jesus doesn't care. What he cares about is our corporate heart as a church and our individual hearts before him say, God, what is it that you want me to do? Who is it that you want me to serve? And where is it that you want me to go? Three years of public ministry could be summed up this way for Jesus. His first year was obscurity. Who is this weird, random, hillbilly preacher coming from Israel? The second one is popularity, which we're seeing right now. And the third one, as we'll get over through the months coming ahead in the next year and a half or so, is adversity. We are in the second year of Jesus' ministry, and all you see is people coming to him. Let's go on to the third point. We've seen the counter move or counter action. We've seen the crowds or the cluster. And now look at the constraint, verses 9 and 10. I want you to notice this. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that he who, uh, he, all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. Pressed around to touch him. The crowds are so big, they have to get organized. Jesus is smart. Uh, and you want to know why the book of the Bible is so historical? Uh, if you're not a student of history, you may miss this. And, and I, I, I appreciate the person who pointed this out to me. If the Bible is just a random fable of story tales, why is there such intricate detail about this? I mean, who cares about a boat? I mean, I'm thinking about, when I see that word boat, I immediately think of the nursery rhymes. That's the stage of life we're in. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, etc. Yeah, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Well, it's not a dream right now for Jesus. He's at a place where they're getting ready to crush him. So he tells them, guys, get organized. This is a, a boat. And remember, these are expert fishermen. So he tells the boat, if you can just see this convening, if you can just see the water, you can see the crowd coming down. They're all reaching out to him saying, Jesus, heal me, heal me, or whatever they're saying. And, and he realizes that for him to speak the truth they need, not just heal them, although he did, the greater miracles in the spiritual truth he brings, he has to have a backup plan. Literally, they are backing him up to a boat. I've never tried to stand in a boat, but I can imagine trying to preach a sermon in a boat might be pretty difficult, right? But Jesus loves the crowd, nevertheless. The crowd here literally means crush, shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm. They were pressing forward to the Lord Jesus. They were pushing him to the Sea of Galilee. But he said, have the boat ready or we will be crushed. But Jesus wants the crowd to come, but he wants to remind his disciples his time has not yet come. And notice the reason they came. The, the, word, the word for there is a word of explanation. 
and desperate to get a hold of him. He healed out of love, uh, the love of God. And, and I mean, literally, he spoke, and the galaxies just dripped out of his fingers. Jesus could have healed every single one of them, but that's not why he came. That's not primarily why he came. It would have been nothing for him. It would almost be, there's a great illustration of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and if you ever want someone to read, yes, he's a dead guy, but he's not that old of a dead guy. He's 50 years an old dead guy, okay? But Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a family doctor to the royal family for many years leading through World War II. And Dr. Jones was a, uh, uh, a physician who, who once quit this way. He, he loved taking care of the royal family. He liked being around the royal family. But he got to the point where he said, what's the point of this? I'm just serving rich people all day. He said, I'd rather save, be a doctor of the soul as a pastor than be the doctor of a physical of people who don't necessarily need my care. Came one of the greatest preachers of England in the 20th century. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's reminding this crowd that there has to be some constraint. His work is not just physical, it is now spiritual. But the people keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. Go back to chapter 1, if you will, if you have your Bible open still. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 37. I want to show this to you. You remember that, uh, as we preached about, that preaching leads to healing of the soul. Medicine is only temporary. But go back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 30, uh, actually verse 36. I want to read this to you. And it says, And Peter, or Simon, and, and those who were with him searched for Jesus, and they found him and said to him, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Friends, that's why the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is garbage, to use that language. We don't come to Jesus to get a handout. We come to Jesus to get Jesus. That's what it's about. We come to Jesus because he gives us everything that we need. He is everything. He didn't say their greatest, uh, that I may preach there also. He didn't say that I may heal there also. He said that I may preach there also. Friends, I just want to remind us as we apply this to our lives, of living a life that is well known in earth, heaven, and hell, I want to remind us that we need to know that the hardest decisions often are not between what's right or wrong, but between what is best, good, and better, all for God's glory. Could Jesus have healed every person in this place? Yes, amen. Does Jesus still heal today? Yes, amen. But Jesus knows that their greatest need is not a physical healing. He knows that their greatest need is a greater revelation of himself. And so many times we don't make choices that are between evil and good, but between better, best, and good, don't we? Do I send my kid to this school when this one has these options? Do I take this job because this gives me this flexibility here, but boy, I've really got to make it up over here. Do I pay my light bill or do I feed my kids? And that's more of a reality in our congregation and our, our community than we know. Sometimes we settle for just what is good, and that's okay in some certain situations, but spiritually, friends... We can never settle for what is good spiritually. We have to settle for what is best. What is best for you? Is it best for us up here to bring in an entertainer to entertain you week over week after week? Maybe for our flesh. But spiritually, the best decision we can is to sit under the preaching of God's word. And I'm speaking to myself most of all. I need that. You need that more than anything. This is why Spurgeon said that we don't come to entertain the goats, but we come to edify the sheep this morning. 
So that's what he's reminding us of, is that he's saying they're coming, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. But to live a life well on this earth for our church, friends, we must be reminded that preaching God's word, sharing God's word is ultimate above everything else we do in this life. That can come through service, that can come through conversation, that can come through example for sure, but that is our primary objective. Let's go on to number four. So we've seen the counter move, we've seen the, uh, the, the great move of the people, we've seen the constraint that Jesus has uh, not to heal all of them, but finally, uh, the last two here, I want you to focus on the confession, the confession. Look back at verse 11 and see what this says. Mark chapter 3, verse 11. And it says, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Who are these unclean spirits? Are these, uh, I don't know, are these, uh, you know, the Hollywood uh, Noah version? If you saw that book about Noah or Moses, whichever it was, that was just crazy. Are these, what does this mean? These are unclean beings. These were morally filthy. These were vile, polluted, wicked, evil, and the opposite of the Holy Spirit. These unseen spirits saw him. They didn't get a passing glance, but they stared him down. They looked at him and said, oh, he's here. Oh, what's he doing here? They tried to penetrate and look down. And what happened to him? They fell down. They fell down before him because they had to acknowledge that he is God, just as they had done before. Notice the irony here. Friends, we believe that Satan rebelled, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, from God and took a mass, Jude tells us, of angels with him. But in that mass, these angels who once worshipped God are now the ones who are saying, oh, you are, oh, you are the son of God. They are unclean. They once bowed down before him, but now they have been cast down before him. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that there's no power under heaven that can undermine our God, that he is able in every situation to take whatever is in front of him and make it his own? That's the amazing part. That's our God. That's practical, guys. But while they had direct contact with him, they are looking at his infinite perfection and holiness. They are seeing in the spiritual realm, so to speak, they know he's God. He's not just some wandering, itinerant preacher, although he is. He is the son of God. And they recognize him as the only God, the one true God that he is. And they cry out to him, you are the son of God. They get it. They totally get it. They have now seen that he is absolute, he's supreme, he's undiminished, he is God in the human flesh. And this is the first time in Mark's gospel where we see this. Friends, that's why it's so important to remember. James chapter 2 and verse 19, many of you know this. You believe there's a God? Good. Even the demons believe there is a God and shudder. They tremble at God's word. That's why our Savior, as you see up on the screen, is a Savior of nobodies of which we all qualify. He never says to somebody's until they confess that they are nobody. Often we pray, don't we? At least I did in high school. I can remember doing this. And often we pray for those people who have the greatest influence across the land or across our employment or across whatever to come to know Christ if they don't know Christ. And we should pray for everyone, shouldn't we? Shouldn't be a person who doesn't know Jesus that goes unprayed for. We should pray for everybody. But in our American idealism, we believe that if we can convert the most influential person to Christ, then that means everyone else that follows them will become Christians as well. It's very dangerous theology. Friends, we need to remember that all of us are nobodies. 
And if a, no one, if a drunk stumbles down this aisle one day and says, give me Jesus, praise God, we're going to give him Jesus. And he's going to come to know Jesus. And that may have a greater effect than that most popular person than anything else. Because you need to realize you're a nobody before you can know the somebody who is Christ. But what about my self-esteem? What about my self-worth? What about my self-pride? At the foot of the cross? Throw it out. Because it means nothing to God. To come to Christ, you have to recognize you are a sinner and you are in need of a Savior. Until you see a need for a Savior, there's no need for you to come down this aisle. We can preach at you until you're blue in the face, but until you see the need for Christ, there's no reason to be baptized because only those who know Christ should be baptized. Well, Darren, don't you want everyone to come to your church? Of course we do. But friends, let's remember that when the demons confess that he is the son of God, there is more theology in their confession than most nominal church members across churches across the world, and even in some pastors. Do you realize that most churches split over this question right here? Who is Jesus? Is he a good preacher? Is he a good man? Is he a good whatever? The demons come and say, no, you, singular, Jesus, are the son of God. The son of God. Friends, we will die as a church on that truth. Because look, if Jesus isn't the son of God, then why are you here? Why are you here if Jesus isn't the son of God? If Jesus isn't the son of God, why are you praying? Why are we going to celebrate Easter? We celebrate Easter every Sunday. It's always Resurrection Sunday. But why do we do what we do? We do it because when Jesus said, it is finished, we take him at his word, don't we? When he said, it is enough, it's enough. When he said, I'm coming back three days later, Sundays are coming, as the or African-American friend preachers preach so well, Sunday came and he came back. And guess what? He's coming back again. And that is your hope. That is your strength. That is your practical motivation when everything else in your life goes to the fan. That is what keeps you going, that Christ's word is enough. The demons had good theology, but they had bad, whew, boy, they had bad praise. They praised Jesus one day and turned their back on him the next for all eternity. How many people in churches do the same thing? Jesus, I love you, but as soon as something bad comes in my life, I'm going to go become a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon, with respect to those people. Friends, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, not because the demons say it, but because he is the one who we can anchor our life to, because he is the only one that rose from the dead. What an amazing God he is. Let's close with this last thing. We've seen the counteraction. We've seen the cluster, the constraint, the confession, and finally, the command. Verse 12, we'll end with this. I know that's always dangerous as a preacher. We'll end with this 50 minutes later, but... We'll end with this. And he said, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus, as a human, we would say this. Jesus, why in the world would you say not to make yourself known? Wait, didn't you just want the people to, you're bringing people closer. Don't you want them to know who you are, Jesus? I mean, can't you just see screaming that from the text? Why are you not, Jesus, does that make any sense? Friends, guess who's saying that Jesus is the son of God? Think about this for a second. Who is saying that Jesus is the Son of God? It's not the people, although some of them by God's sovereignty may see it. He strictly orders them not to make him known because he has the supreme authority to do that. When Jesus says no, people say no. When Jesus says go, he says go. That's why Jesus never knocks on the door of your heart. If Jesus wants into your heart, he's going to pile drive that door down and come and get you because that's how, how powerful our God is. 
Jesus doesn't knock at the door of your heart. He's knocking at the door of a church in Revelation 3 to the point at which he can blow down that door if he wants to. Well, that's not my God. Well, that's the God of Scripture. And the God of Scripture says, don't say anything. Why? Because it would be unfitting for the Son of God, who's holy and pure, to be proclaimed by those who are wicked and vile and depraved. Did you ever think about that? Jesus doesn't need the help of the demons to make known who he is. Jesus doesn't need the throng of hell to make him well-known on earth. Jesus must be proclaimed by holy vessels. Otherwise, we contradict the very message he came to do. I love Billy Graham. I've always been a student of his ministry. I think uh, we gave out the biography of Judy, I think, or someone was asking about this, Betty, or someone at the Busy Hands. We talked about the biography of uh, Billy Graham, uh, Just As I Am. If you haven't read that, read it, especially in light of the last few days, the Billy Graham rule. You've probably heard that on the news. Uh, Anyway, chase that rabbit another day. But Billy Graham was flying on an airplane in the 1970s, and he was sitting next to a drunk on an airplane. And and the drunk man uh, said, you're Billy Graham? Whoa. Billy Graham was bigger than LeBron James. You all grew up in that. Is that not true? Is he not the biggest name and popular saved or unsaved? And he said, you're one of them? He said, Billy, I was just at your last crusade. I'm one of your converts. And you know what Graham told him? And I love this. And I'm quoting don't tell anyone. You're the worst advertisement I could ever have in disguise. <laughs> Why did he say that? Because everything about us, including our theological disagreements, must be done, must shine with nobility. Jesus didn't need the demons to talk about him because he wanted a holy vessel to talk about him. Darren, are you saying that God can't use me when I sin? Well, of course he can, but that's not the point. You shouldn't aim to sin just so you can say, God, here I am, come send me. God says, no, here I am, I sin, you. And so we must be holy and pure, clean vessels. And that's what he's saying here. He says, don't tell them you know the Lord Jesus Christ. If your life isn't pure and sanctified, then tell them about Christ. Friends, we are not perfect witnesses. I never want to proclaim that we are. We shouldn't be. But some of us, we just believe that you know, we can live how we want to live and say Jesus, and that solves everything to someone to come to Christ. Friends, I pray that our church seeks after Christ more than anything else. I pray that as a church, we desire his presence more than anything else. I pray as a church that we want to make him known more than anything else, but in a holy, sanctified way. That's always our prayer. Parents, you don't want your kids to go out and and, uh, live like the prodigal son did and go blow off all their money and do everything, come back and say, hey, I'm part of, we love them. But I'm I'm such and such. You would feel a little bit of embarrassment, wouldn't you, on a very human speaking level? You would. How much more spiritually? Friends, pray this week that everything you do is to God's glory, that we would do that. And please, as I often say, as I write these things down, God works in my soul more than anything else. Because as a pastor, you live in a glass bowl. Uh, Your family's in a glass bowl. Your church is in a glass bowl. Your social media is in a glass bowl. Well, Darren, when you wrote this article, was that intended for me? Did you preach this sermon about no? But questions like that come up. And it's easy sometimes just to be super pastor and never really show your face. Friends, I'm a sinner in need of grace more than any of you, more than anything else. But praise God, there's a God of grace who says he loves me no matter what. His love was fixed on Christ. And he wants me to live a holy life even though I am a sinful person. Friends, I just want to, as we close... Are you well-known in heaven? 
Are you here today and you need Jesus as your Savior? Are you here and you've never professed Christ? You never admitted you're a sinner, acknowledged your sin, and repented and believed the gospel? Then this is for you. We will be here after the service. We'll set a time. Please come. Walking an aisle doesn't save you. Christ does, but he's the only one who can. Christian, are you well known on this earth? Are you seeking to make Christ known through whatever lot God has given you? Maybe a worse health than before, older age, or less finances? You know, God can work through you in ways that you never thought possible just by saying, yes, Lord, send me. That's how amazing our God is. Are you well known in hell? When you pray, does that make, however this may work, does that make the demons shake in their boots if they have boots? Does your prayers, does when you stand up and you pray or you do that, does that make all of hell send out all its reinforcements to try and stop whatever you're doing by temptation? often the smartphone temptation? Is that how it goes? Is your life set apart to Christ? Guys, holiness is not popular. Being holy, Matt will talk about this tonight, 8.30 we'll, we'll, on Facebook. What is holiness? Matt will unpack this for us tonight, 8.30. Holiness is not popular. It's not gonna win you awards in Christian circles, but it will win you praise in heaven. It will make you well-known on earth, always not for the right reasons in the world's eyes, but right in God's eyes. And it will make you well-known in hell because that's what Christ calls us to. Is your faith worth exporting to another country like we do? Is your family, is your marriage, is everything in your life worth exporting to someone else if you were to take that gospel with you wherever you go? Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that this morning that you would be glorified in our church. Father, I thank you for Mark as we just go through scripture that it just teaches us lesson after lesson after lesson. Father, as we prepare our hearts after this next song for the Lord's Supper, I pray that you just search us, Lord, as you have. You've, you've been doing that even as the sermons and speaking. But I pray that you would show us areas in our lives not to just shore up to be a good old Christian, but, Lord, to be a Christian with a soft heart, wholly set apart to you. Father, that won't make us popular in the world. It won't make us popular in hell. But it will be pleasing to the greatest audience we have, which is you in heaven. Father, that is our prayer. Father, I pray for anyone in here who's feeling a weight of the law. I gotta do this, gotta do this, gotta do this, gotta do this. Father, I pray they fall on the gospel. I pray they fall on the safety net that is that Christ has completed everything. They just need to follow you. Simple, faith-like child obedience and let you fill in the details as you lead them. Father, I pray for those equally who are running with free grace who said, you know what? If God can use David in his adultery, then I guess God can use my life as well, and I'm just going to keep on sinning to sin. Father, if they're yours, for the glory of your name, draw them back, Hebrews 12 style. Father, as only you can. Lord, I don't pray anything except that you take our church, make it a holy light on this hill for Maple Park, Gracemore, and the surrounding area. Father, let us be known not for anything else except that we love Jesus so much that people get sick of hearing about the name of Jesus with all love, with all mercy, with all boldness, to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.